warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies. Hi, Scott here as usual with me. No Tony this week. Um, by popular request, some may say, uh, he has returned to the Stinking Paws stable of podcasts. You may know him from his appearances on the Stinking Paws. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen, good morning. Hello, mate. Thanks how, for having me on. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad, yeah. Keeping busy. Um, Happy to be uh, back on the the airwaves as it is. Yes, it's so. been a while, hasn't it? I mean, you've been very quiet recently, but I know you've got things sort of bubbling on the boil, ready to to bring to us at some point. Yes, I'm I'm writing stuff for a, a documentary series, but um, various life events have slowed up the actual progress of that. But <laughs> it's um it's on the way. I've I've finished the first episode, which is uh, about an hour long. So yep. we'll see where we go on that one, but. Um, this it's is, not about it's not about films, so it probably uh, will probably stick to the subject matter of what we're here for today. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, you saying about life getting in the way? I think every single podcaster I know has to take a break at some point because of just just life just just generally get in the way of of the things we enjoy doing, doesn't it? Unfortunately, so uh, no. Good to hear. Good to hear you're going to be back on the airways hopefully very soon. Um, you've been guesting on an American show as well, I believe. Yeah, I, I every month I, I I'm a regular contributor to um, a, a progressive podcast, a pro- progressive politics podcast over mm-hmm. in the states, um, giving them the uh, the not America news because they only really know what's going on within their own borders. So, um, so you give your that's, yeah your that's spin fun, on it. It's fun, fun to educate them on uh, what they're missing out on. To be honest. <laughs> They've got enough problems over there as it is, mate, and then we're just going to add well, to it by throwing yeah, yeah. all sort of Brexit and God knows what else over, over oh, to them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so British movies, you are a fan of British movies. We met up a couple of weeks ago. Very enjoyable. We met in London. Um, yes. Which which yeah. we don't do often enough, mate, but geographically it isn't always, you know, possible. And we spoke about Real Britannia and... Your love for the podcast, my love for the podcast, and British movies in yep. general. And we're not ousting Tony in any way here. Tony is still part and parcel. He is very much part of the Real Britannia podcast. But in order to keep the momentum going, because we've got quite a few listeners out there, and we're trying to get some content out there, you very kindly have agreed to sort of step in and, and do podcasts when Tony's not available, which was great. Absolutely, and and you know maybe at some point there'll be the pair of us on. Yes, um, I'm looking but, forward um, to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, and as you know from from my background, from numerous conversations we've had previously, that um, a lot of 
my experience and your experience of film watching is very much uh, in tandem. We, you know, we we remember the VHS era. <laughs> we remember when there was only three channels on television, and you would watch on a late on a Saturday night. There would be some random cult classic on. Yep. Um, so where we're coming from, I think, is is very much similar. Yeah, we've <laughs> it's it's incredible the the similarities of how we both discovered certain movies they were probably exactly the same time probably the same viewing on the same channel yeah quite spookily quite possible yeah, yeah. And, and we had fond memories of like the, the horror double bills on bbc2 on a saturday night or yeah you know the sunday matinee movies you know those old british comedies that would always be on there or the war films and things that sort of tony and i are sort of focusing on i mean we're not gonna change the remit of what we're going to be discussing here they're british movies we're not putting any time limit on it so it can be yeah. yep can be anything right up to current cinema releases i mean off air you were talking about the death of stalin you know that might be something we could discuss somewhere down the line i haven't seen it um but things like i daniel blake you know from last year oh, absolutely year yeah, yeah yeah that sort of thing but then We'll go back. You know, you can jump in on a Norman Wisdom or a James Bond if you wanted to, if, you know, if Tony's going to bring that to the table. Carry On Films, let me just ask you, how do you stand on Carry On Films? Well, uh, I think they're very much uh, an example of Britishness. Um, <laughs> you know, we, when you um, were reviewing um, the last Carry On, yeah. um, you were talking about um, friends of yours that had introduced uh, an American to carry on cowboy. And I wonder was, who that was. That, that was, that was, that was maybe uh, me and, and my former co-host Smokey. Yeah. We'd, yeah. um, we, we'd done that, which went down, um, like a, a bucket of sick. Um, <laughs> but, um, you no, know, I think the, the early ones actually are credible as, as films. Yes. Um, the, the, as they progressed, they became their own thing. And, um, Maybe the the you know the quality wasn't there, but they they had their own their own specialness that people could actually fall in love with. Yeah, and so um, I think they they're important as part of the, this sort of history and culture of, of British cinema. Definitely, Charlie said that on the Stinking Pause a couple of episodes back. He said, "I don't particularly like them." He says, "But I I value their importance. I realise they are." They are a major part. Well, there's probably, at one point, probably the only films that Britain was chucking out, you know, on a regular basis. Um, and and they're 60 years old this year. There's 30-plus movies. You can't you can't ignore them, basically. No, no, you can't. And as you say, you, you've touched upon a few other examples of, of series. You know, there's the James Bonds yeah. and um, the, the Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, you, you mentioned there about Norman Wisdom. I mean, massive... I'm a massive fan of Noel Wisdom. I saw him, saw him twice live in his in his latter years and still doing exactly the same as what he was doing <laughs> earlier on, throwing himself around and playing 17 different instruments. And, yeah. But um, there's, there's a lot of iconic uh, films out there for us to actually touch upon, but there's also a lot of hidden gems. So I think this, you know, the whole premise of the podcast is um, going to be pretty much endless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got such a wide canvas to work from here. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a British movie. That's the only stipulation. And I think we're going to be a bit sort of lenient in, in sort of our definition definition of what makes a British movie. You know, it's, we're, we're quite flexible. We're quite flexible on this. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, mate, because it's just given us an opportunity to, to spread Real Britannia's wings a little with you on board. So without further ado, you have selected today's movie um 
What yeah. is it? Yeah. I, I, sent, I, sent you a, I sent you a text message uh, crypti- cryptically trying to describe what it was. And um, I think you I think it took you um, 20 seconds to reply um, with exactly what it was. So, yeah. Yeah. So what are we going to be reviewing today, mate? Well, um, it's a legend of a film starring someone who will be a prime suspect for us. Um, it might sound sharp, but I think we'll ha- um, be fully armoured to have a good roundtable discussion. So that's um, Excalibur Excellent. from I it was 1981. Ca- I thought it was Carry On Cabby for the moment there. Let's-, <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a short break. We'll play the trailer and we'll be back with our review of Excalibur. <laughs> The legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is an oft-told tale, and none more so than on the big screen. Prior to John Borman's Excalibur in 1981, however, there probably wasn't as many as you may think, and certainly few that actually tell the tale without resorting to comedy, song or even animation. The first major movie based on the Arthurian legend was a Connecticut Yankee released in 1931. It was the first talking picture adaptation of the Mark Twain novel A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. The movie starred Will Rogers as the time-travelling Yankee and William Farnham as Arthur. There are also some early film roles here for Myrna Loy and Maureen O'Sullivan. Will Rogers was a massive star of the early days of Hollywood. In fact, at one point he was the highest paid actor, appearing alongside such greats as Lou Ayres, Billy Burke, Boris Karloff, Joel McRae and Mickey Rooney. Up, wretch! Thou art captive of my lunch! Hey, what is this gag? Get on back to your circus parade there. What manner of madman art thou, who speaketh so strangely? I'm the radio man that brought a battery out here. Hold! I understand they not. Up! Before I hoist thee on my lance. Hey, what do you say? This guy ain't kidding at that. Hey, listen, old Ironsides. What what do you got me pinched for? You you got the biggest badge I ever saw on any cop in my life. Am I am I in my right mind? And and if I am, the uh, Canst telleth me where in the hellith I am? Now I know that thou art mad. Yonder lies Camelot Castle, King Arthur's court. Thou art in his vast domain. One of us is cuckoo. It, it, it can't be you. It, it must be me. For well, that, that certainly ain't no part of Connecticut. Come, wretch. I've bandied too many words with thee. On to the castle! 
In fact, so popular was the Mark Twain source material, a musical version was made 18 years later, starring Bing Crosby as the time traveller and Cedric Hardwick as Arthur. And perhaps the most famous song from the movie features Crosby, Hardwick and William Bendix singing Busy Doing Nothing. We're busy doing nothing, working the whole day through, trying to find lots of things not to do. We're busy going nowhere, isn't it just a crime? We like to be unhappy, but we never do have the time. I have to watch the river to see that it doesn't stop and stick around the rosebuds so they'll know when to pop. Better keep the crickets cheerful, they're really a solemn bunch. And only an hour for lunch. And as if all these adaptations were not enough, Disney tried their hand with their version released in 1979. Bringing the story bang up to date, it was entitled The Spaceman and King Arthur, or Unidentified Flying Oddball, complete with rocket ships and androids, and a host of famous British stars including Rodney Bewes, Pat Roach, Ron Moody, Jim Dale and John Le Mesurier. And of course, as Arthur, we had the ever-dependable Kenneth Moore. So, when Stardust blasted off prematurely, I was trapped inside. Now, you recall my explanation of the law of gravity and how that theory is applied to orbiting objects? Well, Stardust... Yes, yes, we all recall. Madame Curie and Fulton's steamboat and that imbecile who flew kites in the rain. Just think what we could do with the likes of them today. They were not just the creation of your disordered brain. Those are the straight goods, King. It happened just the way I told you, or at least it, it will happen that way. And do you seriously expect us to believe that you were alive 1,400 years from now? Then why aren't you 1,400 years old? Well, that's a little difficult to explain. With your permission, sire, may I suggest we put an end to this travesty? Agreed. Take him away. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I can tell you how the Crusades are going to come out, and I can warn you here that Mordred tries to take over your kingdom. And maybe with a little historical license, I can help you out, King. I eat very little, and I'm very good with the screwdriver. The first movie version of the Arthur legend to be based on Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur was Knights of the Round Table. Released in 1953, it starred Robert Taylor as Lancelot, Ava Gardner no less as Guinevere, and Mel Ferrer as the King. The movie was notable as being the first MGM picture to be filmed in Cinemascope, and generally received good reviews at the time. Although this is quite hard to believe when you listen to this trailer. Knights of the Round Table. For the greatest entertainment experience of your life, see with your own eyes the magnitude and depth made possible by the anamorphic lens and the sweeping cinemascope screen. 
through Cinemascope, you become one of those present at this memorable event. For around you stand the legendary chiefs and warriors who have come here, as you have, to see Arthur Pendragon receive the enchanted sword Excalibur, and so become the rightful king of all England. You'll ride with Robert Taylor and know him as Sir Lancelot, the gallant knight in shining armor. With Ava Gardner, you'll enjoy the pageantry and splendor of the day when she, as the lovely Lady Guinevere, comes to wed the great King Arthur, played superbly by Mel Ferrer. Within the vaulted walls of ancient castles, there comes to life the magnificent masterpiece, Knights of the Round Table. God grant long life to the table round. All the remembered characters of the one romantic adventure story that has thrilled millions through the ages. It's all here, just as the immortal story told of it. The fury of excitement, the intrigues and passions that split a kingdom asunder. There is a fraying link in Arthur's chain. Lancelot is the queen's lover. Traitor! Why is the queen not with you? Touching her loyalty and mine, I will give full account. But first, I must speak of a friendship from which all else has sprung. In the old days, I rode in search of a man and found him and became his friend. We fought side by side and endured all things together. And if at times we differed and fell out, still I will say that no two men living were greater friends. Then I met a woman. From that hour, I loved her. Her name is Guinevere. She's your queen. My friend was your king, and it pleased him to make me her champion. Guinevere, this knight is my banner, sword, and shield. A man and a woman may love each other all their lives with no evil between them. Be that as it may, my lord, if any knight saving your person will say that the queen is not a true wife, I will make it good upon his body. It would be another ten years before we'd see the next cinema version of the famous legend. This time the focus would be on the characters of Lancelot and Guinevere in 1963's Sword of Lancelot. The movie starred Cornell Wilde as Lancelot with Gene Wallace as Guinevere. Apparently a bit of a passion project for Cornell Wilde, for as well as starring in the movie, he co-wrote, co-produced and directed it as well. Unfortunately for him, the movie didn't fare particularly well at the box office and is generally forgotten today. Camelot, Sword of Lancelot, an epic tale of hope and heroism, of castles and kingdoms. Welcome to Camelot, my dear Guinevere. A time when the heart had to be as strong as the hand. Starring Cornell Wilde as Lancelot. She will know, as I do, as do all your familiars. No kinglier man, no manlier king lives on this earth. It was an era where knights battled for the love of a king. An era of passion, strength, and violence. A beautiful sight. There is Lancelot. It is Lancelot. He's not dead. A time when love was threatened by loyalty and honor. A time when betrayal meant certain death. It seems that love and hate are so close akin. Only the sharpest sword can separate one from the other. Sire. A timeless epic. 
sword of Lancelot. Icatus Ficatus Sumba Kazik. I want your attention, everything. We're packing to leave. Come on, let's go. No, no, not you. Books are always first, you know. Another version of the story that fared much better, however, was released the same year and is the much-loved Disney animated movie The Sword in the Stone. It was the 18th Disney animated feature film and the final Disney animated movie to be released before the death of Walt Disney. The songs in the movie were composed by the Sherman brothers, who would later write the music for other Disney productions such as Mary Poppins, The Aristocats and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The movie was based on the book of the same name, which was first published in 1938 as a single novel. It was later republished 20 years later as the first book of T.H. White's tetralogy, The Once and Future King. Disney are currently in pre-production for a live-action adaptation of the movie, due to be released sometime in 2019. It wouldn't be in summer Seeing you in summer I never would go Still on a musical note, the incredibly successful stage musical Camelot was adapted for the big screen in 1967 based on the 1960 Lerner and Lowe Broadway musical which in turn was based heavily on the last three of T.H. White's quartet of novels it starred Richard Harris as Arthur, Vanessa Redgrave as Guinevere, and Franco Nero as Lancelot. Originally running at nearly three hours long, it grossed just over $30 million at the box office. Not enough, unfortunately, to show a profit, but it did, however, win three Academy Awards the following year. Oh, I've seen how you sparkle when fall nips the air I know you in autumn and I must be there and could I leave you running madly through the snow or on a wintry evening And so, into the 70s, and perhaps the most famous and best-loved adaptation of the Arthurian legend. Monty Python and the Holy Grail was the second movie spin-off from the Python team. Directed by Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, it was first conceived by the team between the third and fourth series of the BBC show. It took numerous rewrites of the screenplay before the group settled on the final product, for initially the story was to be set not only in the Middle Ages, but also in the present day. The film had an initial budget of about £200,000, and it is well known now that this amount was raised from 10 separate investors, each chipping in £20,000 apiece. Those investors included Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin and Genesis. 
no doubt influenced by the contribution being seen as a good tax write-off, with the UK's income tax being as high as 90% at the time. Released in cinemas in 1975, its popularity has increased incredibly over the years, and there's now even the hugely successful musical adaptation Spamalot, drawing in the crowds in the West End and Broadway. And these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guidel Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see. What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. Uh, I told him we already got one. <laughs> well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English types. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggits. What a strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your gender direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Is there someone else up there we could talk to? No, now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. And so, six years after the mayhem of the Python's search for the Holy Grail, came John Borman's vision. Borman, best known for movies such as Deliverance, Point Blank and Hell in the Pacific, had been wanting to film the Arthur story since the early 60s. The timing was certainly right, for about this time, there were a few fantasy movies being made towards the tail end of the 70s. Dungeons and Dragons was sweeping the globe, and the release of the movie itself came just months before the release of Dragon Slayer and the Time Bandits. In fact, within a year of the release of Excalibur, cinema-goers will be treated to other fantasy movies such as The Dark Crystal or Conan the Barbarian. The time seemed perfect for its release. In fact, that first wave of 80s fantasy movies paved the way for what would follow. Labyrinth. Legend. Fire and Ice, The Princess Bride and The Neverending Story. But Borman's movie, although fantastical, is certainly no fairy tale. Featuring the movie debuts of Gabriel Byrne and Liam Neeson, an early movie appearance for Patrick Stewart and some tremendous overacting from Helen Mirren and Nicole Williamson. 
It is a blood-soaked, sex-filled, majestical, overblown interpretation of the Arthurian legend. There have been other versions since 1981, but none of them come close to John Borman's spectacular telling of the legendary tale. A well-crafted, beautifully shot, fun, yet sometimes disturbing movie. Wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and the despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power. Excalibur. Presents John Borman's Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. And I will marry. Don't you know me, Merlin? Because I'm a creature like you. Their magic is Merlin. Are you just a dream? To some. A nightmare to others. Their king. Is Arthur. You are my husband. I must be king first. Their power is Excalibur. I swear eternal faith to our king. Sir Lancelot, you will be my champion. Which is that? Greatest quality of knighthood. True. Where hides evil then? <laughs> Where you never expected. A world of wizards, kings, warriors, queens, swords, sorcery, and desire. Forged of splendor and magic, where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur. Sword of power, sword of kings. Excalibur, released in the USA on the 10th of April 1981. I haven't got the UK release date, but I'm assuming it's about the same sort of time, mate. It's directed by John Borman and starring Nigel Terry, Helen Mirren, Nicholas Clay, sorry, Nicholas Clay. Listen to this list. We've got Nicole Williamson, Gabriel Burn, Liam Neeson's in there, Corinne Redgrave, Patrick Stewart. Who isn't in this movie? Oh, it's incredible. Um, your history with it, mate. I'm assuming you watched it round about sort of time of release, same as I did. Um, a little bit later, a few years later, but it was because um, the first time I saw it was uh, on VHS, mm-hmm. and it was probably. Well, in those days, it took about two years for things to come out on VHS. I seem to remember. True. So it, it must have been, must have been the mid eighties, yeah. um, just before the mid eighties when I when I saw it and um, watched it repeatedly um, <laughs> f- from that point onwards. To be perfectly honest, it's probably the first time I've watched it in thirty years. 
Um, right. Similar to you, VHS. Um, I tell this story very many times. My stepfather was a video pirate back in the 80s, so we got access to, to stuff pretty much as they were coming out at the cinema. Very dodgy camera-recorded copies, third or fourth generation, quite grainy and horrible-looking things, you know. Um, but this one I remember being quite a very clear version of it, a very good copy. And I watched it repeatedly, same as you. I mean... I think it was it was just something about it appealed to me as a teenage boy about this whole mystical Arthur legend. We hadn't had a decent film about this particular story since Sword in the Stone, you know, or the, yeah. <laughs> or the Spaceman yeah. and King Arthur, you know, do you remember that? Um, and, and looking back, I mean, I'm going to let you fly first with this. It's an overblown mess of a movie, but it's still enjoyable. Um, yeah, I watched it a couple of nights ago. I popped it on the projector. Actually, I watched it in in the largest format I'd ever seen it in. Uh, there's some holes in it, but I, I, you know, as a whole, I generally enjoyed the whole thing. So, just I'll let you fly, mate. You give us your thoughts and feedback on Excalibur. Well, it's it's obviously got a lot of nostalgia for in it, like yourself for mm. it. So that does tint the view of it. The the special effects on it, you know, we'll say at the outset is um, trash, really, when you look back now. Um, at the time, at the time, it was amazing. But obviously, yeah. as, as with many of these things now, you look back and it's, you know, you can see the edges yep. and almost, almost see the hands there holding <laughs> holding things. It's just, but um, no, it's it, it's very much a, taken apart from that, it's very much a, a visual piece. It's, mm. it's overblown, trying to stir up the romanticism of the... This, it's a medieval idea of what King Arthur was rather than actually any representation of reality. Yeah. Uh, and it's full on with all the shiny armour all the time and uh, the, the big battles with swords and making sure that people are, you see people being run through. Yes, definitely, um, yeah. It's, and it's, you know, I think it's taken a lot more, like you say, back to the Arthurian legend as originally written rather than some of the the edited versions and the rewrites that there's been in order for it to be put on cinema and, and such like. Um, the the acting in it, um, there are some fantastic actors in it, yes. not necessarily not necessarily acting fantastically, <laughs> but, there are, but, um, but there, are, there are some amazing people in it you just, that are, are very early in their career. I mean, you listed them earlier, yeah. which which is surprising, and some of them you're, you've forget about until you look down the list or you're actually watching it and you're spotting in the background somebody who sat around the table who, yeah. who suddenly, you know, now is a, a mega star. Liam Neeson, it's, prime example, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's the that's what, probably the best example in there that, you know, he was he was pretty much a bit part, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, interestingly, you know, had a canoodle at one point with... Um, Helen Mirren, and they uh, end up living together for a while. So That's that you know, yep. so they, you know the 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 way things progressed from this in a in a personal sense for the actors. But um, no, it's it's very much trying to capture that romanticism um, and tell the story as it was originally written. And I think it does capture it. It does very much give you a sense and feeling for it all. Um, it. It chimed with me as a as a boy, you know, into swords and sorcery and and such like. And there's there actually are you know funny bits in it that I think me and you when we were talking um, before, you know, 
can quote some of the lines from Merlin, who was a, a sort of odd character in there because he's this really sort of powerful wizard thing, but he's it's it's like he's he's dealing with children and absent-minded and just having to you know turn around and tell them off or make some little quip at their expense which yeah. they, they don't understand um and that that has its own value in itself to be perfectly honest uh with with nicole williamson there um so i think overall you know if, if it's your kind of thing as a film then you know yes i think there's enjoyment to be had on it from it as long as you you accept that there's a certain amount of tongue in the cheek and it is very much an attempt to have a visual spectacle rather than um, have a, a great narrative. I think you've hit the nail on the head about it being the whole sword and sorcery sort of era as well. Do you remember sort of the early 80s? It was all sort of Dungeons and Dragons was massive at that time. Oh, um, I did all that, yeah. yeah. I, was, I spent a lot of my teenage years doing, you know, sat around a table with sheets of paper rolling, exactly. rolling dice with too many sides on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, common ground again, but... You know, we we would jump on things like this, or Conan the Barbarian, or you know, I'm trying to think of some of the others, Krull, or whatever it may have been. Hawk the Slayer was about this yeah, sort. Of. So Slayer, do you remember yeah. that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and this just seemed the shiny armor, it, for, for want of a better phrase, it just seemed so polished. It was this exaggeration. It was overblown. It was this romantic notion of the Arthur legend. But visually, it just looked, oh, my God, you know. And I remember the battle scenes being a lot more, not more bloody, but I remember them being more involved. I remember more people in the battle scenes. When oh, I, I, I remember them being more epic. <laughs> yeah, um, but they even though, I, even though I watched it within the last few years when I watched it the other week, yeah. um, last week, I, I thought, I'm sure that it, you saw more <laughs> epicness and there was more, like you say, more people in there yeah. and wider shots of... but. No, it was just, it left that impression rather than actually that's what was happening. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's a maybe that's a credit to the, the direction that they've actually managed to leave that impression, even though that's not what was happening. You but, can see what he's uh, done, you know, filming yeah. in, a, in a backlit wood with, you know, lots of fog and smoke gives the impression there's a lot more going on. And I think that was the appeal of the, the visual side of the movie to me when I was a kid, because it just looked grander than what it actually was um, um, going back to Nicole Williamson and you saying about there's some fantastic actors but not fantastic acting I think Nicole Williamson who was a superb actor he's a victim here of sort of post-production because his whole voice has been ADR'd over the top hasn't it and it's just seems a little bit disjo- yeah. seems a little bit disjointed from the rest of the narrative he's just sort of like it's a great it's a great version of Merlin it's not your typical long-robed guy with a white beard that we imagine Merlin to be and i think that's what appealed to me as well because it was just like okay yeah he's walking amongst us he is part of you know everyday life but at the same time I'm- don't I'm taking the piss sometimes, it yeah. seems. Yeah, don't underestimate this man's power. You know, you might be quite demanding. Um, I just love the fact that, you know, he actually fulfills like Gabriel Byrne's wishes and then has to rest for that nine moons, as he says, you know, because it's taken it all out of him completely. Gabriel Byrne, early role for him. Superb, yeah. superb performance from Gabriel Byrne. Liam Neeson, as we said, in the background. I forgot Corin Redgrave was in this movie. Sherry Lungi as well. You know, whatever happened to some... Some of these have disappeared, haven't they? You know, they were in everything um, back in the early 80s. Bit of a John Borman passion project from what I was reading. I mean, he had the first 
inklings of doing this back in about 1968, he says. Um, now, the Correct me here, John Borman directed Deliverance, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. He did, right, because Charlie Borman's in this film. And yeah, and his daughter his as well. daughter as well, because Charlie Borman was in Deliverance as a baby, then he's brought him back into this movie. There's a documentary out there I found out this morning, as I was just sort of setting up today, uh, about five years ago. It's called Beyond the Sword in the Stone. And, and they get together. Everybody gets back, um, all those that were still alive, because I think Nigel Terry passed away not so long ago. Um, well, a, number, a couple of them died of, of cancer, yeah, unfortunately. Nicole yeah. Williams and yeah. um, Nigel Terry, Nicholas Clare, wow. um, Colin Redgrave, I think, as well. Didn't yeah. he? Didn't he? So, yeah, there's quite a few of them that, that, that died off of cancer, unfortunately. So maybe that mist in the forest wasn't very good for them. <laughs> it could be but, anything, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but those that have survived have gone on to be superstars. You know, Helen Mirren, Dame Helen Mirren, you know, Liam Neeson. Passion project for Borman, as I say, and it's the Borman family movie, you know, because he just brings in everybody. And I'm trying to find a copy of this particular documentary, but there's a trailer for the documentary on YouTube. And Gabriel Byrne narrates this very sort of brief snippet of story where he's asked to film the scene where he's making love to John Borman's daughter. Now, what you see on screen... Of, of those two together is literally all that was filmed of those two together and he says that um, I spent an hour and a half being filmed dry humping a cushion basically because Borman <laughs> wouldn't let me near his door <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, that, I, I think I'd seen something about that before yeah. and now you, now you mention it I remember um, but yeah it's a family it does seem like a, a sort of family movie in that sense yeah. I, I heard that um, it was it was filmed the majority of it was filmed uh, on location, so close to the to Bowman's home that he could actually go home and sleep in his own bed each night. That's it. So, mm. uh, Ireland, that's yeah. it. He just, just brought the kids in from home one <laughs> one morning. <laughs> yeah, it's all filmed in Ireland. That's another thing. The location footage of you know the coastline or the forest with the waterfalls and things like that. Again, it's it's sort of overblown, exaggerated. You know where. Um, Lancelot and Arthur first meet. You know, that, that is the famous yeah. story, isn't it, across the bridge? And it's almost... I'm going to come back to Monty Python in a minute, actually, because there are some real similarities here. <laughs> but, um, you know, none shall pass, you know, the Black Knight. Yeah. But but when you look at it, it's like, my God, he must have spent hours location shooting because you've got this perfect waterfall behind it, a lovely lush green forest and things like that. And that's the appeal of the movie to me, not necessarily the acting which is a little bit ropey now when you look at it. But <laughs> yeah. there is so much more to this film that still makes it appealing, even, you know, 30-odd years down the line. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, the the scenery is, you know, it's been said before, like, cliche maybe, um, but the scenery is a bit of a, a character in itself, I think. Mm. Um, and obviously doing it in Ireland, they had to be uh, very lucky getting the weather right. Uh, yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it's that where they could find that sort of less spoiled wilderness that was maybe um, more evocative of the time when it's set rather than over here where it'd be difficult not to find some um, some power station in the background yeah, or yeah. <laughs> on, on motorway. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think as far as... Um, how they've they've shot it and taken advantage of of the actual scenery. They they have actually managed to um, sell the the feeling of the time when it was set. So 
credit to them there, even though I imagine it was a, a bit of a nightmare with the weather being, being as it is. Yeah, yeah. It's um, filmed totally on location in Ireland with an all-Irish cast. Just looking on IMDb, just going back ever so slightly, uh, his other daughter was in the movie as well. Right. She was the lady in the lake. She's the arm that comes out of the water. Oh, of course, her. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a, yeah. So there's another daughter there. And I bet Gabriel Byrne wasn't allowed near her either. No, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Uh, <laughs> apparently there was some friction between Helen Mirren and Nicole Williamson. They'd fallen out six or seven years previously in a version of Macbeth. I heard that, but they actually made up and became quite good friends by ah, the end of the right. production. Ah, right, because I think Borman like, deliberately got them together to, to recreate that tension between them. sort of thing. Your thoughts now, going back to this movie after loving it as a teenager, what, what are you thinking now when you look at it? I mean, I, I take it you watched it in the last week, yeah? Yeah, I watched it, yeah, um, last Saturday, I think it was. So, yeah, yeah I've watched it within the, the last week. Um it's. I can completely appreciate that there's. It, it's got shoddy parts to it, as I say, <laughs> particularly the special effects. Um, some of the dialogue feels a bit, um, a bit forced, and they've obviously got some some character actors in who are Shakespearean based, who they think they obviously thought they could deliver these lines in a way that would actually sell it, but yeah. in actual fact, probably does the opposite. Mm. Uh, <laughs> makes it sound even, makes it sound even less real and uh, less easy to digest, but. Overall, it's it's it is a, a, a visual spectacle. I mean, they must have spent the majority of the budget on the armor alone. Yes, um, yeah. and you know the the green tint to a lot of the armor to make it look even more magical, which was a, a strange special effect that that actually works. The mm. um, but it, it it's it still stays with me because of my childhood. But looking at it from a, you know an adult point of view, as somebody who didn't have that. Um, childhood affection for it. I think it'd be easier to to dismiss parts of it, but overall, I think if you're looking for something that is a retelling of the Arthurian myth, it's very difficult to find anything that does it better. There's really. not many. It ca- out there, captures there, that. No, there's not a lot of movies out there that have there been any since that have addressed it. There, there's well, there's been. Um, wasn't the there was one done about. Three, four years ago. Is that the Charlie um, Hummond one or whatever his name is? Is that the guy? I'm trying to remember who who was... Yeah, I think it's Charlie Hummond, I think. Yeah, 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 you're right, yeah. Is that him? It was him from that was... Um, he was in um, Sons of Anarchy, I think. Lost one of those shows. Zed. Yeah, Lost yeah. of Zed. I so, think yeah, it. so, yeah, him, yeah, because that was Guy Ritchie, wasn't it? I think it was, and again, that was a so, bit of a mess as well, so, from what, by all accounts. I haven't seen it, but what a Guy Ritchie film that's yeah, a mess. You can imagine it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, but... what are you saying? <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, I, I think that was, and I think uh, from what I can tell from the the sort of little bits of visuals I saw from that one, yeah, I think it's it is attempting to capture more, um, more based upon its caliber as far as that feel of of the evoking the the romance of it and and build upon what Bowman did because I don't think anybody before had managed to tackle it as well no with Guy Ritchie really being the only one that's tried since I don't, I can pretty much be certain that nobody's managed to tackle it that well since true uh, to be perfectly honest <laughs> um so I'm not saying it, it couldn't be topped but there's 
I think with you know you've got these special effects now that could give you a lot more. Yeah. But I'm wondering whether whether making it more epic with special effects and having mass epic battle scenes and and such like, whether that would actually take away from the the actual concentration on the characters of the story. Yeah. Because when you think when you think about it back then when it's meant to be set, there wasn't like sort of hundreds of thousands of people to be in a battle in a way. A large true, scale yeah. battle. If you look at if historically, a large scale battle did involve like sort of fifty people against sixty people. Just having a know. scrap in the field, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, because you know, you you had like one person per five mile squared. Yeah. So it, it, there was a less population. So um <laughs> you know I think maybe it's it is more faithful to what the what it might have been if if the Arthurian thing wasn't just a legend. Yes. But um no, it, to go back to what you were asking, I think, yes, there's there's holes in it that you can recognise and see, but I still do think it actually is, is worth a viewing for people. Mm-hmm. And um, it does have um, it does have a, a, an iconic status as a, as a British film, I feel. Yes. It's, it, it, it's, it's overlooked a wee bit. I don't think it's spoken about as much nowadays as it was at the time. And as I said, it's, it was difficult for me watching it this time without having Holy Grail. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the back of my head in certain scenes. The thing that surprised me on this viewing is how much of a, an important character Percival is. In oh, this. yeah, Be- yeah. Because he, he just starts off as, as this sort of lowly character at the beginning that becomes a knight almost by chance. But he ends up being the hero of the whole story in the end, doesn't he? You know, And it's, it, and, and it's a shame because I believe there was a three-hour version of this out there somewhere that's never been seen. And it would just elongate that whole epic part of the journey because it does seem a little bit rushed towards the end. Once you've got over the Guinevere Lancelot love triangle thing and then all of a sudden, you know, the land is dying, Arthur's becoming ill, you go on this quest for the Holy Grail. Oh, okay, off they go, boom. And then it's five years later. You can see that things have, like, progressed and the knights are being killed off by Morgana and people are starving and things like that. That if if you know if it's in that three hour version, that would be, you know, and make this movie the, even better. It's it's a good it's a you know it's a good criticism that um the the leap in the time frames of how it moves along. I mean you you had a, had them trying to use actors to span what must have been a, a period in the actual characters' lives of maybe twenty years. Yes, and um you know Nigel Terry coming in has been this boy squire even though he was in his late 30s but <laughs> yeah, then and towards the end of the film he's playing an old man um but yeah the, the transition between different time frames of, of it leaping i don't think there's enough to actually uh, sell it no the, the, the time has moved on it's it's a it's more realization that time has moved on that you do is as very much maybe a, not even a th- second but a third thought down the the, the line so they could have done better with that, I think. Um, and if there is a longer version, then, you know, I'd definitely be happy to see it. Yeah. Um, and I did hope that there was, you know, I've got the DVD of it. And when I originally got the DVD, I was hoping that there might be extra scenes in there or, or a director's cut version around or something like this. There's but, nothing on the DVD, no, is there? there? There isn't. No, there isn't at all, which um, is, uh, you know, a bit of a shame. There's two Blu-ray versions out. There's your bog standard sort of like eight quid Blu-ray that's out there but I think HMV have got an exclusive it's their sort of like premier range 
that are about £15 right. pound a go. And they're usually pretty good. You know, they're like the Criterion collection of Blu-rays where they try and get every single bit of extra documentary or trailers and TV features and things like that. I'll have to have a look, see what's on there. I'm hoping that Behind the Sword in the Stone documentary's on there because it looks really fascinating because, they, you, you know, in the trailer for that... Helen Mirren's in it, Liam Neese and Gabriel Byrne, they're all being interviewed, and it was only like four or five years ago it was made, so I think that's going to be real sort of like fascinating insight into what went on, you know, with Charlie think, Ballman and the family. I think that's also indicative that they, you know, that they're not people who would have felt the need to go and do um, an interview on the subject for the sake of somebody offering them some money or... Um, whatsoever because of their their success and popularity that they've got at the moment and the demands on their time so they they must see it as being a, a critical part of their career or something they have some kind of affection um it's, for in order for them to actually be willing to go back and even having a a, a 10 minute discussion about it they must must feel something for it it's, it so must be you know yeah it must be a very important part of most of these guys film career you know because Helen Mirren, although she'd been acting sort of for like 10 years previously, the year before, I think, was Long Good Friday. Then she goes into this. And it isn't until sort of like the last 15, 20 years that she's become that major Hollywood player that she is now. Liam Neeson, you know, was plodding along, plodding along for like all through the 80s, just doing these occasional roles and, you know, and it isn't until he became the action star Mm. You know, after the death of his wife, where he suddenly became like, you know, the 60 year old action superstar that he yeah, is yeah. now. Um, Gabriel Byrne, up to that point, you know, then Usual Suspects came along. You know, you know Springboard of Prime Suspects. Yes, of course, yeah. But it's interesting. It's, an, it's a nice little snapshot of, of I was going to say Hollywood history, but it is British history, British movie history. And. It is, as you say, a springboard for a lot of careers that have gone on to so much more. Um, and you can see why um, it's important. Even, yeah. the, guy, even the guy who um, who did play um, Percival, yeah. um, something Jeffrey, his name is, um, yeah. he, you know, he's gone, okay, he's not been a megastar, but if you look at things he's been in, I mean, he's currently in the, um, what's the Breaking Bad uh, spin-off? Uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, uh, Better Call Saul, yeah. yeah. He's... He's got a part in in that, and wow. you know, crops up in in things like this. So he's gone on to to every one of them seems to have either gone on to being some form of, of notable star at the moment. It's naturally things, or unfortunately, is no longer with us. Yeah, yeah. Kieran Hines is in this as well, which you know I completely oh, forgot. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and and we haven't mentioned Patrick Stewart. No, <laughs> no. I mean, this is it. This was before he. Um, I think this is one of his first film roles. I mean, obviously he was a, a, a respected Shakespearean actor yes. since probably probably since birth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, since and, had, you know, yeah. a, a local of up here near me, uh, a Yorkshire lad, even though you can't hear it in his in his yes, accent. Yes, but yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, this was one of his first roles, and his then film appearances were sporadic. I think after this until um, the the point at which he hit the Star Trek thing. Yes. But, yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, it's interesting to see where people's careers went from this. And, I mean, okay, one of them ended up in Keeping Up Appearances, but... Um... <laughs> That's true, yeah, he's, he's in it. He's Richard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was his. It was Arthur's stepdad yeah. went up, went on to be the um, the oh. husband of 
Hyacinth, Hyacinth oh, Bouquet, okay. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, the, the downbeaten um, husband. Clive so, Swift, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, um, so yeah, there's you know there's there's those those people in there that every single one of them, as I say, you know, went on, and those that didn't actually survive longer were uh, much longer, you know, were still very respected for what they already had done. Yeah. So there's a lot of talent in there, even if it's maybe not dealt with in the best way. Yeah, it's it's just incredible to see, you know, the the early stages, the birth of people's careers here. I mean, Liam Neeson is just in the background for most of it, and you're just looking, is that him? And it is, you know, because he's like this quite tall guy in the background, you know. We don't usually rate movies on Real Britannia. It's something we tend to do on Stinking Paws, but... You have your own unique way of rating movies, if I remember rightly. You don't. That's that's, that's correct. Yeah. You, you don't like the star system, or you know, the percentage system, or grading it as an A plus movie or whatever. Let the listeners know, Stephen, mate. How how would you rate this movie in your own unique way, sir? Yeah, my my system is based upon you know what I'd recommend for people if they were you know whether I'd recommend people go out and try to catch it at the cinema or make a special effort to, to buy it or capture it on, you know, catch TV or just mm. just see it when it happens to be on. And I, I would I would place it not right at the top of that. I would say if, if this is your kind of thing, then... Well, actually, I, I, before I say, so for you seeing it on the bigger mm. bigger picture, yeah. did, that, did that, was that better or worse than seeing it on a smaller <sighs> screen considering the, the, the special effects and, and such? I think if I'd have watched it on my TV... I would have been very disappointed. I think I needed that bigger screen experience just to... Right. To, I mean, in my sort of star ratings, that would have given it an extra half a star. Right. Um, well, in, in that, you know, I would say that if, if this kind of sword and sorcery thing is something that you're interested in, then I would say, yeah, if there's a special showing of it... Yes. Um, get, go out your way to actually try and see it. I mean, obviously, if sword and sorcery isn't, isn't your type of thing, then you, it's difficult to recommend it to you know in any format. But, yeah. Um, I'd at least recommend people if it's if it's available out there on on television to DVR it and and give it a go when they're in the mood for it because I think that it does have that status and that piece of history as far as position yeah. in the cinema cinema of of the UK and British films that it's something that you should have seen at some point really if you're interested in British film yeah so so yeah I'd, I'd recommend. Make an effort to to see it if you're if you're interested in in British film, definitely. And especially especially at the cinema if you're interested in in seeing it, it's best. Yeah, I think if I was to you know find a local screening of it on a proper you know cinema screen, I would probably go even if it was next week, week after. Because as we've always said, movies weren't designed for TVs. Movies are made to be watched on in a cinema on the big screen. You get so much more with those surround sound experiences and, and, and the bits that are lacking special effects wise or the, the grand scale of the battles that we thought they were perhaps you know on a bigger screen we're going to get more of a sense of that um, John Borman's not a, a crap director by any sense of the word you know in any by any stretch this guy knows how to make movies and he's made decent oh, movies oh he does yeah, yeah. Uh, Point Blank and as you said Deliverance yeah and, uh, there's a whole whole gamut I mean He's still doing, you know, he's still making films now. Exactly. So, and he had, you know, he was lucky enough to have the money thrown at him to to make this movie. He originally, I think, wanted to do an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, but that was too big a movie to make at the time, you know. 
and fair play to him. He has tackled a subject that hasn't been sort of covered by Hollywood or the British cinema industry with any decent success. This is the best version of it out there, unless you're eight years old and you want to watch The Sword in the Stone. It is, you know, this is the perfect telling of... Well, it's the classic text, isn't it? It's the Mort Darthur, isn't it? It's the yeah. classic text this is taken from. If you want a funny version of it, see the Monty Python one. Well, this is the thing. I was wondering whether um, it coming so close on the heels, you know, relatively speaking, yeah. because the, the speed at which cinema releases happened back in the day, in our day, yeah. um, where we're such like that's, you know, a couple of years, you know, four years or so was was actually a, a long, you know, a lot closer time to get that frame than now. Yeah. Um, and I think that that there was st- there would still be people who were maybe um, only picking up Holy Grail for the first time around eighty one. The video um, age, so of course. I, yeah. I, I wonder how how it was received at the time. Whether it was it was necessary to try and do it in this style, this seriousness, and and this treatment of it as a as a retelling of the actual text yeah. in order to get away from it being just a, a, a sort of a carry-on, probably not the right word, carry-on, but a, <laughs> an add-on to the um, to the Holy Grail that people were thinking, oh, you're just milking something that's that's become popular recently. Yeah. Maybe it needed, needed to be a, a sort of different treatment of it in order for it to succeed. Yeah, I think it may have appealed to the fans of... The Holy Grail, you know, it may have yeah. it may have pricked an interest amongst the viewers back then, you know, because thinking about it, wasn't Holy Grail about seventy four? So we're looking six or seven years afterwards. Mm. But as yeah. you say, it was the dawning of the video age, so people were being introduced to mm. Holy Grail or you know Life of Brian, which was probably the year before nineteen eighty. But you know that whole Monty Python thing. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to go back and especially talking with you because we've got similar memories of how we came across this movie and you know wearing our copy of the VHS out when we were kids how many times did you watch it 20 times possibly same oh, probably. oh I probably watched it um at one point in uh, one year one of the years I probably ended up watching it like once every six weeks or something stupid <laughs> um so and as you say in the pre- in recent years you know I before I watched it Last week, I probably haven't watched it for three or four years. Yeah. Um, but I have gone back to it, you know, a number of times. Mm. Um, but certainly not as regular as I as I did at one point. But I think it still is is worth me going back to watching. But maybe um, maybe keep that that gap of a few years between it. I think so. I'm I'm going to go out and have a little look for this Blu-ray version. See what's on there with the extras, and you know, see if it's worth investing. But even if there isn't that many, you know, sort of extra features or, you know, supplementary material on it, I think I'm going to invest in the Blu-ray now. I think it, it deserves to be upgraded in my collection because the DVD copy, as, as, as fine as DVDs are, Blu-rays obviously have got better picture and sound quality. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably reinvest in the Blu-ray. Um, interesting to see it gets 7.4 on IMDb, which is massively high for IMDb. Mm. Oh yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's in the eighty percent. I think. Let's have a quick look. There we go. The Tomatometer, <laughs> as I always call it, seventy-eight percent audience score of eighty. So fine, absolutely fine. That's a a, a, a rousing endorsement of this movie, from what I can see. Yeah, which you know, considering as, as we said, the special effects let it down uh, with the the green screen and the. Um, 
smokes the, the, and the the, yeah. the um, juleps emulsion blood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's far too far too bright red. But um, but then they do no, things I, really well. You know, the sword actually being pushed into the stone. I thought that was fantastic. The way they achieved that, you know. Well, it it being pushed through certain pieces of people's bodies. Just you know, the the close up of that and some one or two well, bits. You're thinking. They've done, you know, the special effects on that. How, They've actually done a practical effect. How did they do the bit where Lancelot pulls that sword from his hip? How was that achieved? Because you can it's, see it sticking out of his back. Yeah. And he pulls this is it. it. Yeah. That. The, the, pra- the practical effects, uh, as we've, you know, we've, I think has been said before by both, is that mm. at a certain point when they started using the this the special effects that weren't, pra- you can see that they're a bit shoddy. But that effect of, of pulling the pulling out. There's, I've got no idea how they actually made it look so real of pulling pulling it out of his flesh. Yeah, because the bit I noticed that's, that's this time round, the 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 part that was sticking out of his back does actually move through his flesh. It's not yes. stuck on, and it's a retractable blade. So yeah, fair play. I'm going to have to see if that's on this making yeah. of documentary if I can track it down. So in my rating system, I normally do like a five star thing because. Um, I'm a member of letterbox.com, so I'll put all my re- yes. reviews on there. I don't like using half stars, um, particularly now. So for me, it's four out of five. Five is the perfect movie that will always be in my in my collection, but four is one that I will always revisit, um, yeah. like yourself. Probably now, every four or five years, I think. I'll, I'll just, yeah, that's one. That I'll, you know, sitting there on a Saturday evening, I think, yeah, I fancy, fancy a bit of bit of overblown pomp and glamour and, and just a bit of bloodletting, you know, some axes flying through people's chests and stuff like that, you know. Because sometimes you need that, Stephen. You need a bit of that. Yeah, and, and, to, and, to, and to go um, star spotting as well, going, oh, it's Sansa. Oh, yeah, look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Excalibur. Um, we're going to take a very short break and we'll be back with what Stephen and myself will be watching next time. Okay, Stephen, next time we meet, it's going to be my selection. Now, when we spoke about joining in with the Real Britannia podcast, I said, oh, just send me over a list of of what you fancy talking about. And sort of 24 hours later, this list of about 15 films appeared on my phone. And then about an hour later, another 20. And (laughs) And then the following day, oh, how about this lot? Another sort of dozen. Yeah, and almost telepathically, there are movies on there that I'm thinking I would love to discuss these on Real Britannia. These are the sort of films that not necessarily Tony would enjoy, but they're they're sort of films that you and I will have a common history of and yeah. common memories and things like that. So it is on your list. Um, it was going to be on Real Britannia right from the start, anyway. It's a movie that celebrates its 50th birthday next year, as do I. We've discussed it on The Stinking Paws about four or five years ago, myself and Charlie, and I need to revisit it because I haven't seen it since. It's Ken Loach's Kez from 1969. Well, yeah, uh, very much from my part of the world, obviously, up here in the north of England. So, um, yeah, and as we said, I think when we were talking in the pub a few weeks ago, that they... um, my childhood experiences of, of sitting in a in school actually and, and being 
forced to to watch a film and that was my very first experience of it but um yeah it's 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 a northern film with a backdrop backdrop that i'm familiar with Excellent. so um that'll be a, an interesting film for us to be able to talk about definitely did you study the barry hines novel then at school Kestrel uh, for a knife. We, yeah we, we we read not the entire thing but we read part of it yeah in to sort of do comparison. Um, do you know what? I think that was exactly uh, the same as us. I don't think we did the entire text. I think it's, yes. it's bizarre how this was brought about. So I'm looking forward to that because it is it is a it's, it's a top 50 movie for me, I believe. I don't know if you go into that sort of thing. It's, it's definitely one that as I have a lot of fond memories of as a child. Uh, the, the source material is a book that I go back to quite often. And it is just a stunning performance by a child actor. It's going to be one of those ones where a child actor is not crap. I think we're going to be singing. Is it David which, Bradley, isn't it? Yeah. Which is it's rare. It's rare that you don't want to kill the child. Exactly. Um, in, a, in, a, in a movie. So, um, yeah, it's going to be uh, exciting to have a... I mean, it's not a, an upbeat, exciting um, oh, film in, in an action sense. Um, no. But it's, uh, it's got a, a lot it's, of... Um, value to it and there's certainly plenty to talk about we've we got brian glover to talk about as well mate and colin, and colin <laughs> welland they're all in it it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to this so we're going to be recording in a couple of weeks time not sure when the episode will be coming out because obviously there may be some episodes with tony coming along as well Stephen, thank you very much for coming along this morning so you have been a welcome addition to the real britannia family it's uh, my pleasure, and I look forward to uh, future episodes. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find this and other episodes at realbritannia.libsyn.com. You can follow us on Twitter at rbritanniapod, and there's a Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash rbritanniapod. Emails, if you want to send us an email, some MP3s, as a few of you have, it's realbritannia at gmail.com. Stephen, thank you very much, sir. I'm looking forward to seeing you very soon. Okay, cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. See you later. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.